That music means your next hour is going to be about connection. Welcome to This Show Is All About You, a show dedicated to discussing and experiencing the things we all have in common. When you and me become we and explore what it means for all of us. Here's your host, historian, writer, social commentator, and a whole lot of other things, J.D.K. Winnekin. And hello again, everyone. Welcome to another episode of This Show is All About You. Thank you for taking the next hour to spend with me as we take a look at uh, things going on in the world, a lot of things that we're talking about uh, that are at front of mind, but hopefully getting underneath some of those narratives and underneath some of those oversimplifications and assumptions about them to find the things around which and through which we can connect, no matter who we are, where we are, or what we're about, or what we agree or disagree on. That's what this show is all about, and happy to have you here with me. If you would like to know more about me, you can check out my website, wordsbyjdk.com. There are episodes of this show. There's also original writings, essays, uh, information about the novel that I'm pitching. You can check out a lot of stuff there, and there is more to come, which I'll be talking about a little bit later in the show. But you can check me out there. You can also find me on, in, on social media, Instagram, Facebook, the X, just look up my last name, W-Y-N-E-K-E-N, and you'll find me rather easily. We'd be happy to hear from you, hear your thoughts, take your questions, and see what might be on your mind in these seemingly very turbulent times. We've been saying that for quite some time now, but hopefully uh, you'll reach out to me there. I'd be happy to connect with you. A quick shout out to this show's longtime sponsor, Airway Science for Kids, a nonprofit based down in the Portland, Oregon area that provides life and career pathway opportunities for underserved youth through the exploration of aerospace careers. There are hundreds of them in that field, and it is a growing field, and it is a field that is wanting more and more people to be a part of it. Airway Science for Kids helps prep kids with the skills they need, both the hard skills and the soft skills, but also does it in such a way that helps them better connect with themselves, their families, and their larger communities. If you'd like to know about the amazing work that they do, at Airway Science for Kids, please check out their website, airsci, A-I-R-S-C-I dot org. And you'll hear a little bit more about them during the show breaks today. Okay, well, a lot has gone on. A lot has shifted in the world um, rather abruptly in the last couple of weeks, and I was out last week. So I have not had a chance to talk about what is going on uh, in Israel and Gaza. That is going to be what we're talking about today. We're going to talk about the history of that region a little bit because that seems to be um, either lacking in these conversations that have been going on or um, overly generalized, in my opinion, as a professional historian. So we're going to talk about that today. But first, obviously, we want to take a look at the news of the past week. Israel is part of that. But let's not forget that there's still a lot going on in Ukraine, and these things are somewhat connected. So let's check out the segment called What in the World is Going On? With the world's attention glued on Israel and Gaza, Russia has been waging its biggest offensive since last winter. It's focused on the strategic city of Avdivka and further north up to Kupyansk in eastern Ukraine. And we've seen basically thousands of Russian troops and hundreds of Russian tanks and armored vehicles launch an onslaught for the past six days onto these cities. And really, I think the scale of this offensive does show that the, the Kremlin right now is trying to turn the tide after months of defending against Ukraine's counteroffensive. 
Meanwhile, right, while the world's attention has shifted, as hard as it is to believe, uh, has shifted to Israel, um, the Ukraine war continues unabated to the point that the Russians, in the middle of all this, launched a new offensive. That may or may not be coincidence, but certainly uh, it is being done under cover of the world's attention being elsewhere. And it doesn't sound like it's going all that well, at least in terms of human lives being spent. Once again, uh, Russia trying to do something to blunt what seems to be the very slow but inexorable movement of Ukraine further and further eastward over Russian-occupied territory has thrown a lot of their uh, military muscle at one location, again, further up north and east from the primary area where Ukraine is pushing southeast towards Crimea. Uh, a lot of blood and equipment being spent there, mainly because Russia is on one level trying to make sure they can stretch out what's happening until the rains and the winter of that part of the world take hold and effectively freeze everything into place. It's already starting to happen. Roads are becoming more and more difficult to pass because they're getting muddy. Fields as well. Eventually the freeze will set in and both sides will not just settle in for the winter, but they will consolidate what they're holding on to. And of course, there'll be months and months of diplomatic and political and economic wrangling that will follow. All of this in some ways connected to what may unfold in the Middle East because Russia is relying primarily on Iran for help in intelligence, as well as with things like drones and other weapons. Iran getting drawn into a larger conflict around Israel could have a direct effect on Russia's ability to fight in Ukraine. Hence why Russia has been rather quiet and rather equivocal about what they think. They're calling for a ceasefire in Israel, between Israel and Gaza, because on one hand, they don't want to jeopardize their relationships with Israel, which have gotten better in the last few years, and they don't want to jeopardize their relationships with Iran. So it's hard to tell if Russia welcomes or doesn't welcome this new, de new development. Certainly, I'm sure they don't mind attention being elsewhere, but it may not be the best thing for them in the short term or the long term that this is going on in Israel, but they are powerless to do anything about it because, frankly, all their money, time, attention, and political capital has long been spent fighting in Ukraine. All right, and of course, what has drawn the world's attention is what's happening uh, in Israel, or what's more accurately, what's about to happen uh, in the aftermath of the Hamas attack two Saturdays ago. And uh, President Biden had something to say about it over the weekend. Don't represent all the Palestinian people. And uh, I think that. Uh, it would be a mistake to, uh, for Israel to occupy Gaza again. We did, but to going in and taking out the, uh, the extremists, the uh, Hezbollah is up north, but Hamas down south is a necessary requirement. And of course, that is the crux of the matter, right? After Hamas's attack two Saturdays ago, they killed 1,300 Israelis in the most brutal and vivid of fashions and seemingly was de designed specifically to shock not only the rest of the world, but to provoke Israel into a big reaction. In the aftermath of that, of course, Hamas, the idea of them being targeted and being removed from Gaza and removed from the world scene has a lot of sympathy around the world. The challenge with that, of course, is that Hamas does not exist independently of the Gaza Strip. In fact, they're integrated well within it because they've been controlling the Gaza Strip going all the way back to about 2007. Uh, they are a political entity, a social entity, and a terrorist entity. And in their charter, 
they do say that their express purpose is to eliminate the state of Israel. They broke off years and years ago from the Fatah movement, which was part of the Palestinian Liberation Organization. They are the fundamentalist, radical, religious wing of the anti-Israeli coalition that has existed among the Palestinian people, going all the way back to the creation of the Israeli state in 1948. As of right now, there are roughly 350,000 Israeli troops that have been mustered and pulled together and brought to the border with Gaza or are keeping an eye on Hezbollah in the northern part of the country. And there's sort of this deep breath going on. No one really knows exactly what's happening here. Israel has not given a timeline for when they are going to move into Gaza, but they have ordered every Palestinian in the northern part of Gaza, which is a 25-mile-long strip, by the way, so the northern half of that, to leave their homes and move south. It's about 1.1 million people uh, being told to move south, and they had 24 hours to do it. And the humanitarian crisis that's building there is very real. And at the southern border where Egypt controls that exit, Egypt has not opened that border yet. So there is a lot going on here. And certainly with the horrors of the attack on the southern part of Israel, vivid in people's minds, what is becoming more and more vivid is the plight of Palestinians who are caught in the middle of all of this. And so that is really where we're going to go today. We're going to talk, though, we're going to rewind from this point. Because in the last couple of weeks, I've had a lot of people ask me, uh, reaching out to me on email, giving me a call, sending me a text going, and they largely have the same question. This whole thing seems like a Gordian knot, a intractable situation with no clear resolution that doesn't involve either a complete rethinking of the entire process uh, and mindsets among millions of people in that part of the world, or something like we might be facing, sheer bloodshed. And what do we make of this? Where did this come from? How did this become so intractable? And so in that sense, I thought it might make sense for me today to talk a little bit about the history of this region, the history of this conflict, which of course, because of time limitations, uh, might be rather broad, but certainly I'm willing to start with it today. And and talk a little bit about where this came from, not necessarily because there's some sort of place to either A, assign blame to one side or the other in all of this, or to suggest that there is an easy way out of this. And neither one of that. History does not necessarily inform for those things. What history tends to do on some level is make some elements of this more complicated and at the same time, hopefully some elements of things like this a little bit clearer, at least in terms of stakes, at least in terms of what might not work, uh, and then maybe perhaps some larger meaning. This is a part of the world that you hear time and time and time again is steeped in a lot of its own history, religious history on both the sides of Palestinians who are largely Muslim and Jews, Jewish, and of course there are plenty of Christians <laughs> in that part of the world too all of which have elements of their holiest places in their religions centered in the area of Israel and the surrounding territories, the larger area once known as a region as Palestine. So they're steeped in that history. Now, the thing with that is, is how people understand their own history and how they interpret it in their present surroundings and their present circumstances may or may not always match up with the objective, larger objective elements of their histories. We have a tendency as human beings to want our histories to talk about the best things about ourselves, no matter where we are, 
and minimize or explain away or rationalize, in the worst case, those things about ourselves that aren't so positive. Everybody does that. That is always the risk, which is why it's so important for professional historians to be out there in the world doing the type of research, doing the type of rigorous analysis and writing and teaching and speaking about these things to make sure that there are voices that are trying to move as best we can beyond those simplistic explanations to oneself about one's own history. And we do this on a personal level, too. The thing about history is if done well and pursued with the idea of really getting to the truth of things, factual truth of things, as broadly as possible, can hopefully elevate over time the discussions and the decisions made in the present with an understanding of the past as part of that, but also not being shackled by it. And that, of course, is an imperfect set of movements going on all the time. And it never stops, right? And certainly in the case of Israel and what is happening with the Palestinians in their territory, oh, this is where it gets very, very complicated because the understandings of their own history are intertwined on such a tight level with their day-in, day-out experience over the last 70-plus years. So that's really what we're going to take a look at today. And it goes back much further than... Obviously, this conflict, it goes back much further than the establishment of the Israeli state in 1948. It goes back well into the previous century, into the 1800s, when both groups of people, people who are considered Palestinians in that part of the world were under the Ottoman Empire in the 19th century, and the majority of Jews in the world were not in Israel. They, in fact, were spread out throughout the world, many of them in Europe. And while there were enclaves of Jewish populations throughout the modern-day Middle East, uh, they were smaller than they are now. And in many places, existed peacefully alongside their Muslim and Christian neighbors in places like Jerusalem and elsewhere. It wasn't always perfect, certainly, uh, and there, was, there certainly could be tensions there, but because Jews were, for the most part, part of other nation states around the world, they had their own areas in those, in those states, oftentimes siphoned off over histories of European anti-Semitism. And Palestinians were under the rule of uh, the Ottoman Empires, the Ottoman sultans, going back to the mid-15th century. So there were not independent entities of Jews living in a Jewish state, though it had long been desired in the modern era by the so-called Zionist movement to bring all Jews back to their ancestral homeland where they exist long, existed long before the Romans were in power in the ancient world. And for Palestinians, Muslims had moved into that part of the world after the Muslim expansion of 600 uh, AD and on. And of course, during the Crusades, those areas had been conquered from Christian entities that had controlled that, and that was in the 11th century, that was in the 12th century. So when we talk about people who have long-standing, centuries-long claim to these lands, quote-unquote, we are talking about a lot of people who have a lot of claims, going back a long way. Um, if it were that simple to just say whoever was here first <laughs> belongs here, well, we'd actually have to go back and find people that no longer exist, uh, <laughs> that weren't Jewish, or um, who weren't Muslim. So that doesn't necessarily work. And of course, when we're talking about a modern world, 
people are where people are at this point. And the efforts notwithstanding, wherever we might be talking about, for example, in Azerbaijan right now, or we saw a few decades ago in Bosnia and in the Balkans, and we've seen a number of different places before, attempts at ethnically cleansing areas to return them to former states or you know, that were, are nostalgically driven don't work. And history shows that they don't work. And so what is going on in this part of the world right now is so fundamentally baffling to so many people because really, unlike a lot of other areas on earth, there are so many factors that people identify and tie right back to the history of not just this region, but of the peoples within them that complicate matters and intensify all the emotions around them, both in Israel, within the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, among the Palestinian populations around the larger Middle East, and certainly around the rest of the world, United States, Europe, and elsewhere. This is what makes it so challenging, and there is no easy way out of this. And so when we come back from the break, what I wanna do is I want us to take a deep breath, take a step back, after a couple of comments that I have to make about what has actually happened and what we're looking at, and take a look where some of this came from in a, in a way that hopefully will kind of enlighten as well as elucidate some of the things going on and give us some more things to think about and maybe encourage us all to pause just a bit more before things get worse. Stick around, we'll see you in a minute. I'm Julia Cannell, Executive Director of Airway Science for Kids. We sponsor this show is all about you because it exemplifies our core values, connectivity, communication, emotional intelligence, positivity, respect, and the power of possibility. Help us introduce historically excluded youth to all of these through the wonder and promise of aviation and aerospace careers. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace to all. Visit airsci.org to learn more and to contribute your talents. Welcome back, everyone, to this show is all about you. Talking about Israel, taking a little bit of a historical view in the time that we do have today. And whatever I don't have today, I'll keep coming back to it um, over the next couple of shows because I, it's clear this is going to continue to dominate um, the international consciousness for the relative near future. Uh, and hopefully not in ways that bring more and more pain to everyone involved. Uh, I led at the top of the show with this, this idea that I've heard from a lot of people that this is an intractable situation and maybe so on some level. And yet part of the nature of being part of humanity is that intractable situations nevertheless need to be faced and need to be addressed and opinions need to be had on them and decisions need to be made on them. And so the question then becomes one of different values across the board, values among different populations, values among different nations and an ability to not only see the realities on the ground, but then also to recognize, um, and I think hopefully in as sober fashion as possible, the possible risks of this escalating too much beyond where it has already. Let me tell you what I mean by that. First of all, the attack by Hamas two Saturdays ago on October 7th uh, was one of the most horrendous things any of us could ever really imagine. And Hamas went out of their way to make sure we all knew that. This was done on purpose. It was put on video for everyone to see. And the stories of cruelty are beyond what even seasoned scholars like me who have studied some of the worst um, elements of human history, like the Holocaust. I mean, it shocks even those of us who have studied those things in depth. I sometimes think I've 
I've seen everything there is to see in terms of human brutality, and then something like that happens. And of course, the outrage and the shock and the grief in Israel uh, are palpable and completely understandable in all of that, as well as the anger. For Americans, this is particularly profound when we look back on things like the 9-11 attacks. And right away, there were many in Israel calling this attack by Hamas Israel's 9-11. It is the worst attack on Israel in its history in terms of how many lives, how many uh, Israeli lives have been lost. And that is significant, considering that over the last 70 plus years, there have been a lot of wars between Israel and its neighbors and a lot of violence and a lot of terrorism um, from Hamas and other groups that have killed Israelis. So the very fact that this is the biggest one in history is going to bring up that up in the attention of Israelis. Remember, this is a country that is not very big. It's a country that is smaller, easily, than most U.S. states. In fact, it's only roughly, last time I think I looked, roughly about the size of Connecticut and maybe a little bit of Rhode Island and Massachusetts. We're not talking about a big space. There are 9.3 million Israelis in that country. For perspective, the United States is 40 times bigger, right? So you saw a lot in the initial days after the attack where 1,300 Israelis times 40, that's what the equivalent in terms of per capita would be had there been a terrorist attack in this country that killed 40,000, upwards of 50,000 people. From that perspective, it would be easy to understand why Israel and its people have galvanized around this and have said it is time for Hamas to be wiped off the face of the earth. And certainly after 9-11 with 3,000 killed, the focus on getting to Al-Qaeda and rooting them out became a primary focus in this country that was popular amongst the majority of people. Of course, the larger story of what happens after that is one of overreach by the United States. No matter what side of that you came down on, overreach in terms of there was no plan for Afghanistan in the long run after the destruction of Al-Qaeda and the destruction of the Taliban. And that proved to be very difficult, open-ended, and in the end, a failure after 20 years. And then there was the whole side thing with Iraq that came out of that. And all of that in the name of preventing another 9-11 or in the name of justice for the victims of 9-11 or the, you know, if people really wanted to call it that, revenge for those attacks. Um, some embarrassment on being caught flat-footed. There, all of that was there. So from the point of view of the Israelis, I think there are many Americans who can understand those feelings and understand those desires and the need to root out Hamas, to prevent this group from doing this again. There are also a lot of Americans, some of those same Americans, who take a look at what Israel is planning to do. They have openly said they are going to send troops into Gaza to root out Hamas street by street, building by building, room by room, tunnel by tunnel, and do it really with, as their defense minister put it, without the gloves on anymore. And because of that, there have been increasing concerns that Israel is going to overreach in their response and end up killing a lot of innocent Palestinians in Gaza in the process. In addition to that, there are countries like Iran who support Hamas and probably gave them a lot of assistance in planning this attack, who also support Hezbollah, the terrorist organization in the northern, above the northern border of Israel, 
who are in Lebanon and are just as dedicated to the destruction of Israel as a state and as a people, as Hamas, there's concern that they will expand the war to the point that the United States has sent two aircraft carrier strike groups, the Eisenhower and the Ford, into the Eastern Mediterranean um, in international waters not far from Israel to hopefully put the damper on Iranian attempts and Hezbollah's attempts to expand the war. Because, of course, everyone's fear is that that war is going to expand into something much bigger. Um, a regional war with Israel at the middle, with Iran on one side and its allies on one side, and Israel on the other, and Arab states in between, like Egypt and Jordan and Iraq and Syria, all trying to figure out where they stand in that, would be a mess. It cost a lot more lives than just those Hamas fighters who committed these terrible atrocities. And that, of course, is what this comes down to. And it raises questions about when war happens, who is responsible? Who is responsible, for example, for the plight of the Palestinians in Gaza when it comes to what's happening right now? Many people are saying, obviously, the Israelis ordering everybody to move south. There are many people who believe that this is an attempt by Israel to effectively cut the Gaza Strip in half and occupy that northern part and make it permanent. There are others who say Hamas is the one who've turned these people into targets by coming across the border into Israel. Now, I would suggest from the point of view of not just history, but also of sober judgment, that we should be able to put those things side by side and be able to say those are both true. And if that's something that feels uncomfortable, I would ask us all to say, ask ourselves why. Why is that uncomfortable? And if it is uncomfortable, what's the problem with that? This is a difficult situation. It's a difficult one where everybody seems to be moving really, really fast to really big conclusions that, will, that on the heels of that will follow big actions that will have big consequences. From my vantage point, the longer this goes on without the invasion beginning of Gaza, the better on some level, because it allows for more space, for more perspective, and for a few more voices in this larger picture. Because make no mistake, this might be a national security issue in this specific part of the world, but the nature of that part of the world makes it a larger security issue for the rest of the world, which means the voices of other nations have value here and are super important, particularly that of the United States, and NATO allies, as well as China, on the other side of this. All of them have a stake in this, and all of them, I guarantee you, behind the scenes are incredibly active, not just in terms of talking to the Israelis and the Palestinian authorities, but also working with their own intelligence agencies and between intelligence agencies to do a couple of things. One, find where Hamas leadership is. They aren't in the Gaza Strip. They haven't been for a while. Find where they are and either get to them or effectively isolate them. That's part of what's happening. And letting the Israelis know and working with the Israelis in the process of doing that. The idea, of course, is if you can cripple Hamas from the leadership at the top, must you go street by street, room by room, building by building in Gaza to root them out, to prevent that? The other larger question at hand, of course, is one that has gotten some attention, but not nearly as much. The fact that Israeli intelligence failed miserably. This is the most 
renowned intelligence agency in the world. Mossad is the external, and Shin Bet is the internal. Shin Bet was responsible for this. Their leader has come out and said he bears responsibility for this failure. But the fact of the matter is, the Israelis, who are widely considered to be the best at this in the world, got caught. And that does not mean they are responsible for the actions of Hamas in southern Israel. Hamas is responsible for that and will remain responsible for that. What Shin Bet is responsible for is not only taking, uh, taking responsibility, but then making sure that they are taking steps, no matter what happens in Gaza, to prevent such a thing from happening again. It does not follow necessarily that what that means is 350,000 Israeli troops going road to road, town to town, street by street, corner by corner, eliminating every single militant there is to eliminate, no matter how many, not only other Palestinians are in the way, who may or may not be a part of Hamas, and Hamas is not incredibly widespread popular in Gaza either, it's worth noting. But then there's also upwards of maybe 200 hostages that are being held by Hamas somewhere in Gaza. All of those things fit together. There is no, quote unquote, one right way out of this. There just isn't. Some can say, well, that is the nature of war, and that's what Hamas has unleashed, and as terrible as that is for Palestinians caught in the middle, that's how war is. Okay, maybe that is how war is on some level. Does that mean that you just run into it without a second thought? Without trying everything possible to do this the right way? Again, calling on the American experience. How many Americans in retrospect, knowing what happened the following 20 years in Afghanistan, would have preferred, in retrospect, a lot more surgical, team-by-team oriented approach to eliminating al-Qaeda in Afghanistan rather than occupying the whole country? At bare minimum, it would be up for debate. It would be up for serious consideration, maybe doing something differently. And of course, because the emotions are so high and the demands among Israelis are so high for something to be done, that is building its own momentum behind this. And of course, now when we see the video of Palestinian children without water, without food, without shelter, all of them being pushed out of their homes to a very uncertain future in the South, more and more voices are, being up, are, are coming up about them about advocating for them and saying, is this perhaps too much too quickly from Israel? And when you have countries like Iran saying, if Israel follows through on this attack, we're going to expand the war. Of course, it makes sense that there will be a lot of opinions around the world. The thing that has dismayed me about it, though, is the degree to which the discussions about this tend to gravitate to either one side completely supporting Israel's, not only Israel's situation, but what they're suggesting that they should do, or completely disregarding all of that and instead hailing everything that what, what's going on with the Palestinians, focusing on that, and in some cases, kind of explaining away or shoving off to the side this whole Hamas wants to eliminate Israel thing as a problem, minimizing what happened on Saturday, saying it's a logical result of 70 years of oppression 
oh, boy, that takes away all the agency of all the people who decided to go murder and butcher innocent people in southern Israel two Saturdays ago. That doesn't sit well. I'm struck by the fact that that's how we seem to want to go, almost as if like one flag goes up and everybody goes to that team or the other flag goes up and everyone goes to that team. History shows us, particularly in the history of this part of the world, there is a lot of imperfection, a lot of mistakes, a lot of chosen intractability to go around in this part of the world. This is not to say that around the specific actions of Hamas, that the Israeli people who were butchered were responsible for that. Nor is it to say that the Israeli government is responsible for that specific thing. However, we are talking about a part of the world that has been literally at the brink of tearing itself apart for decades. And there is a lot to go around there. It's worth noting a couple of things. The Palestinians, as a general people, have been displaced by the creation of the state of Israel going back to 1948. And they've existed in places like Gaza, the West Bank, Golan Heights, an area in the north, and then in various little pockets throughout other Arab states surrounding Israel, Jordan, Iraq, Egypt, Syria, for that same period of time. And while there's been a lot of criticism given towards Israel, some of it justified, some of it not, over the 70 years, in my opinion, about their treatment of the Palestinians, one thing that should also be remembered is the Arab states surrounding Israel have not exactly gone out of their way to help the Palestinians either. The Palestinians have been a useful, useful tool for Arab states like Egypt in 1956. All those states I just mentioned in 1967. To, for those states in the name of Arab nationalism to launch wars against Israel to try to wipe them out. 1973 as well. The attack on October 7, two Saturdays ago, was on the 50th anniversary of the so-called Yom Kippur War. When 50 years ago on, on October 7, 1973, all those surrounding Arab countries all committed a surprise attack against Israel and almost defeated them. It was the worst, the closest Israel has come to its own destruction in its history. This was the 50th anniversary of that. The Palestinians have been a convenient tool for those Arab countries for a long time. None of those countries have stepped out and said, we will take in all those Palestinian refugees and incorporate them into our populations. There's a lot of reasons for that, and some of it is it's still a good way to keep sticking it to Israel. So before we turn this entirely into a Israel just against the Palestinians, let's remember that all the Arab state neighbors of Israel have a part to play in this too. It is not a good legacy across the board. And of course, within Palestine itself, their rule amongst each other, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, Fatah, which is a secular political movement, Hamas, a religiously zealot organization, they have struggled and have had their own internal civil wars going on throughout the duration of this period of Middle Eastern history. Nobody is covering themselves in glory. Nobody has covered themselves in sheer innocence in all of this. 
And of course, the backdrop of so much of this has come to bear in the last week and a half since the October 7th attacks, of course, of why Israel exists in this part of the world in the first place. And of course, that takes us back to the Holocaust committed during the Second World War. And of course, the legacy, the descendants of those victims who survived and, and, and surviving descendants of those who died, many of them live in Israel. It is a core part of Israeli identity. The rest of the world not only never wanted us, and there's a lot of historical evidence for that, during World War II, there were many countries that rejected us as a people, the United States including, included, and tried to murder us. So the only safe place we can go is somewhere where we can rule ourselves and be able to defend ourselves because if we don't, the rest of the world has shown what it will do. And that is not a story steeped in fiction. And at the same time, that does not mean that every single thing Israel does should be or can be excused, explained away, or justified because they are a nation state that exists in the now. They don't just exist in the aftermath of the Holocaust. And yes, everything I'm saying, even as I say it, feels icky, <laughs> feels difficult. And yet, what I'm suggesting is, I think that's the point. And we need to get more comfortable with that discomfort. When we come back from the break, I'll talk about a few more things in the history of this region to hopefully elucidate things a little bit more, and then a few things about the future of the show. So come on back in just a minute. Kids never have trouble dreaming about their future. The challenge is providing them the resources and opportunities to reach them. This is especially true from historically underserved communities. Fortunately, there's an organization that can help those dreams become reality. Airway Science for Kids helps underserved youth develop life and career pathways through exploration of aviation and aerospace. Using in-person and virtual programs, along with partnerships with companies, educational institutions, community health providers, and other resources, Airway Science for Kids helps students not only find their dream careers, but also learn how to better advocate for themselves and connect more effectively with their families, peers, and communities. To find out more, visit airsci.org. That's A-I-R-S-C-I dot Or email info at airsci.org. Airway Science for Kids providing aerospace for all. Welcome back to the show is all about you talking about the very, very difficult historical background of what is going on uh, in Israel and Palestine currently and suggesting that um, knowing the history doesn't necessarily make the path forward uh, any easier as far as what the specific decisions need to be. However, it can help us each better, I think, understand where we stand, what we think and what we want to advocate for. Where I personally stand on this is that Israel has a right to defend itself. It also has a responsibility to minimize 
the effect that this has on innocent people, whether these are innocent people who like the state of Israel or not. Just because someone doesn't like the state of Israel does not mean they support Hamas, does not mean that they support the destruction of the Israeli state. And I would also say on the flip side of this, Palestinian leaders like in Fatah and other organizations that are rivals to Hamas could be doing more to denounce what happened here, as could all these different Arab states surrounding Israel. They're all really, really glad and really willing to stay out of the limelight right now for a lot of reasons. And honestly, they shouldn't. If really the concern is reducing the tension in this part of the world to the benefit of everyone, there's more all sides could be doing. And that includes voices for the Palestinians that aren't right now under threat in Gaza. And there's a lot more. Where are you, I would say, in all of this? Uh, there's more to <laughs> There's more could be done. So with that in mind, just a couple of things. And remember that after a while, among any group of people, if there are historical grievances, wounds, traumas that happen, anything subsequent that happens negatively can easily be folded into the story of further proof of the evilness of a certain group of people or the intractability of all of this. Israel, when the country was declared as an independent state in 1948 by the United Nations, after a series of discussions that Palestinian groups walked out on, it's worth remembering that, Palestinian groups walked out on a potential two-state solution in Palestine in 1947 and 1948 in the UN. After that happened, and the state of Israel was declared in 1948, on the night it became independent, all of Israel's neighbors attacked it. Syria, Jordan, Egypt, and more, all attacked Israel at once. It's known in Israel as the War of Independence. Israel won the war, which was saying something. The creation of the state was not without controversy, and not just in that part of the world. The United States pushed very hard for the creation of the state of Israel in part because of what had happened to Jews in World War II in Europe that had become a lot more evident in the years after 1945. And so the United States, who was the big power in the world at that point, particularly politically and economically, pushed that forward. The British, who had controlled Palestine, part of their mandate system after World War I, didn't like the idea at all and said, if we're going to create a Jewish state in this part of the world, it's going to displace the Palestinians that are already there and it's going to lead to nonstop conflict. <laughs> they were onto something, right? Again, not to say that means that one side was mistaken or the other in this. This is just simply what happened. And so you had a push from one side and a desire among many Jews to find some place that was safe. And that's understandable. And then on the other side, concerns that this was going to lead to the displacement of people who had been in this part of the world for generations and cause conflict. What ended up causing a lot of those problems, there were, of course, attempts leading up to the War of Independence for different sides to buy out the other, push out each other. Tensions rose in the midst of all that. And extremists on both sides began attacking British soldiers, for example, or began attacking each other, either to create a Zionist state if they were from the Jewish extreme or to protect Palestinians from the Palestinian extreme. But once the war happened, this became a story about survival for all sides. And that set in stone, seemingly, this story from that point on 
that anything that happened in that part of the world was similarly going to be about survival. Things happen in the future that reinforce that story among both sides. I already mentioned the 1967 war, the Six-Day War, that Israel won, and that's where they ended up occupying places like the West Bank, Gaza, the Golan Heights, after their neighbors again attacked them. And then people on the more extreme side of Israeli society started advocating putting settlers into those territories rather than just leaving them as, as buffers against the Israeli state, something the United States has been against, by and large, ever since it happened. And then the 73 war. So 1948, 1967, 1973, seemingly three big examples for Israel, for Israelis, for Jews around the world, and for their supporters to see, yeah, the whole rest of that region wants to wipe out the state of Israel and get rid of them for good. Is that a nation-state only thing, or is anti-Semitism involved in that? The answer depends on who you ask. It's definitely both across the board in some way, shape, or form. At the same time, the Palestinian story has been there have been plenty of opportunities for Israel to allow for right of return for Palestinians who owned property, had homes, had businesses in now what is Israel proper to return, but Israel has refused to grant that and instead has been okay with keeping. Palestinians either under direct occupation by Israeli troops and police forces or allowing them to exist outside their old homeland in refugee camps sort of set between Arab neighbors of Israel and Israel itself. Usually, in a lot of cases, without really great conditions and not a whole lot of prospects for improving their lives. And there are plenty of stories on Israeli treatment of Palestinians in occupied territories that reinforce those stories, again, are they right or wrong? Some cases, they're right. Other cases, they're wrong. There's a lot of propaganda in both directions, a lot of stories in both directions. But what it does is, and this is the larger point from a historical point of view, is these over time have reinforced to many people, and not just extremists on all sides of this conflict, that there's an intractability to this that cannot be solved, that in the end, conflict is going to be inevitable. Despite the fact that in Israel, for example, there's a lot of division among Israelis about how to best handle the Palestinian issue. There are a lot of Israelis who do not support the occupation of areas inside Israel where Palestinians live. There are many who do. There are many Israelis who do not support the creation of settlements in the occupied territories, and there are many Israelis who do. Israeli internal domestic politics is one of turmoil and a lot of debate, and there's been a lot going on in that country, and I've talked about it on this show before, a steady drift of its ruling government to the right, the more extreme right. And what Hamas has done with its attack on October 7th has done two things. One. It's brought a lot of Israelis who are having a lot of a lot of issues with the ruling government. It's reduced that because now the concern is their own survival. It's also put rather extreme elements in Netanyahu's government, including their defense minister, in a prominent position of decision making when they have shown that they are 
by their very nature, aggressive when it comes to taking on these challenges. Israel has a history of being divided against itself and then when they are attacked, uniting together and responding with force that tends to win out, at least in terms of on the battlefield and in occupied territories. Their country does not disappear. So much of what we're hearing about has something to do on some core level, I believe, with Israel wanting to let the rest of the world know that despite this failure of its intelligence and to protect its own people, which must just be so painful to them, that this is a country that will not be wiped off the map. And that if it takes a major show of force to do that, that if it takes a lot of criticism from the outside world and they continue to move forward with it anyway, will drive the point home in the short and long run that this country is there to stay and everybody should stop trying to destroy it. It's why some people who advocate that approach and that attitude say, this is the way to actually get to a peace table that can do something. Is to overwhelm our enemies with force and make clear that we cannot be defeated. Okay. That might be true. But then the question becomes, at what cost of innocent lives? Israeli and Palestinian. And no one has a good answer for that, seemingly ever. And of course, from the historical point of view, wars, by their very nature, start around what seem to be very clear issues and never go the way anybody thinks they will. There's nobody who's been able to say, in this war, we want to go do this and make this happen, and then that's happened. It's a law of unintended consequences. So what are we willing to see uncorked? What are we willing to see happen? And to what degree are we willing, no matter where we are in the world, to say the larger human question needs to win out here? It seems to me this can be done without excusing Hamas or sparing them the rightful consequences of their actions. We can do this without condemning the state of Israel as a, whatever you want to call it, racist state, genocidal state, illegitimate state. We can do it without that. We can certainly do it without just having to turn a blind eye to the death of innocent Palestinians. And we can do it without necessarily threatening or bringing all the countries in that part of the world closer and closer to outright confrontation that will extend far beyond Israel and Palestine. These are the tests that humanity must pass in order to keep moving forward in the task of civilization. That's how big of a deal this is. It's another example. You, the Ukraine-Russia war is similar in that regard. To what degree, at what point, do we reach the line where all of these different stories, whether they are based in historical fact, 100% truth or not, at what point do those cease to become as important as the overall humanity of people in the now? And there are plenty of people who have the right in Israel and in Palestine to be asking those questions of each other and of themselves. It's going to be really, really hard to do that effectively with the northern half of Gaza being bulldozed to the ground 
and the people who live there having no place to go, and maybe the war getting much bigger than what we expect. And it really sucks for Israel. It really does. And for those Palestinians in the Gaza Strip who feel and are caught in between a hard place and a hammer. Because for them to resist Hamas inside their own territory is a death sentence. So it's tough for all those sides. But the fact of the matter is, the best way to understand that this is about something much bigger than just these two groups of people is for them to actually start to see each other as two groups of people that extremists do not represent. I make it sound, in that sense, maybe easier than it is. And it's easier for me, it's easy for me to sit here and give these words out as hopeful and useful as I think they hopefully might be. But the fact of the matter is it's got to start there in the end. Because otherwise what we're looking at is no matter how this turns out, a repeat of the generational process where both sides see each other as the intractable enemy. And this goes on and on and on and on. Humanity and civilizations and groups of people do not survive in perpetuity when they do that. History shows that. So at some point, choices have to be made to mitigate that in the name of recognizing the humanity of other people who maybe we don't agree with, maybe we don't even like, maybe we don't trust. But we're supposed to be bigger than just that type of proof. Because I think if it were us, we would want that benefit of the doubt as well, individually and collectively. I'll have more to say on this in later episodes, but I want to finish off today's episode of this show is all about you with kind of a, an unfortunate statement, but also kind of one that hopefully uh, is positive moving forward. I've made the difficult decision to bring this show to an end. There's a lot of different reasons for that. A primary reason is because I'm going to be expanding more of what I'm doing with my friend Tawny Santabria and our podcast, Breaking Up With Our BS, that hopefully you've listened to. And you can catch that wherever you get your podcasts. But there's a little more to it than that. Sometimes it's just time for things to be done um, or to be put aside for a little while and to maybe be reimagined. And that's kind of where I'm at right now. So I've got a couple more shows, end of this month, uh, I'll finish up. And I'll have more to say about why in the process. But not to worry, there'll be plenty of other places to find me, uh, both on the airwaves and in writing and elsewhere. And I'll have more information for you for that for next time. That's it for this episode of this show is all about you. All lots of people to thank from Hubbard Radio to Eric Ryder here in the studio to everyone out there who has supported this show. My biggest prayers and best wishes and hopes go to all the people in, in Israel and in Palestine and in Ukraine and in Russia and anywhere else where suffering is going on. I hope more and more of us can connect more and more with our shared humanity. Um, no haiku for the end of this week. Uh, just didn't feel like the right thing to do. So until next time, I'm JDK Winnikin. We will see you on this show is all about you down the road. Thanks, everyone.